Heavenly Father, we thank you for your goodness, your mercy, your love. Thank you for your word. God, may it be the center of um, all of our understandings of you and how you have communicated yourself. God, we pray that you would just move in a special way, that you would help us to to understand and to um, to see you more clearly. God, uh, that you would direct our hearts uh, in leaving here this morning to be a people who are indeed uh, your voice, uh, who are carrying uh, your word to a world that so desperately needs to know of your saving grace. Please use this time for your glory. In Christ's name, amen. All right, so today we begin a, a look at uh, heaven, the life to come, uh, and what scripture has to say uh, about it. And um, basically, as we start, one of the things I realized in preparing the series and, and looking at the various texts and all that is that we all have a lot of baggage, theological baggage, when it comes to the idea, the concept of heaven. There are a lot of voices that speak to the issue that we listen to or don't listen to. Um, and, and a lot of it has to do in terms of whether or not we agree with the person or not in some point that may not even be related to script to, uh, to heaven. Um, have you all ever heard of the idea or the notions called confirmation bias? you all ever heard of that? Okay, confirmation bias is is it's a it's a belief it's a phenomenon that people will accept what someone says if they either recognize that person as an authority or more likely if they say something that they already generally agree with. Okay, in other words, if somebody says something about Jesus, Jesus is the only way. Okay automatically that person enters into your realm of trustability, being trust, trustworthy. That, that okay, they've said Jesus is the only way, so now I can begin to listen to what they have to say in all these other issues. Okay? And it happens in political realm. It happens in, in a lot of different ways. Um, I see it a lot on social media where people will share a story or some other factoid or whatever, and they'll share it even though all the evidence says that particular story is not true. Why? Because it confirms something they believe over here. You understand what I'm saying now? What confirmation bias is? And I think the whole issue of heaven plays a significant role, or, or confirmation bias plays a significant role in our understanding of heaven. What we want to believe about it often becomes what we believe about it because we accept what people say because it confirms what we already believe. And, and there's obviously some value in that. There's a sense of connection that we have with fellow believers, those sorts of things. But there's also a danger in that, that sometimes we accept things that are not necessarily biblical about certain concepts. And in particular, what we're talking about today and in the next couple of weeks is the issue of heaven. Now, let me just say, and I'm about to do something that I don't normally do. My message is going to be a little bit different than it normally is because I'm going to be addressing a certain belief 
or a certain perception that's out there that I think is illegitimate. Normally what I do is I just simply tell you what I believe or what I believe Scripture teaches, and I let you decide whether or not a belief that's out there is illegitimate. But today I'm going to address a belief because it's so prevalent in our culture today. And I believe it's fed by the idea of confirmation bias, that we, a lot of us are accepting it simply because it kind of agrees with some of our presuppositions already. Now, before I get to that, I want to say there are some very good books on the subject of heaven. Okay, There are some very good books out there that are trying to understand what the Bible teaches and so forth. Randy Alcorn's book, Heaven, excellent book. Joni Erickson Tada, uh, Heaven, um, uh, I abbreviated it, so I don't know exactly what the rest of that title is. So um, uh, don't ever abbreviate when you're getting ready to preach. you got to read the title. It's, it starts with the word Heaven, and it's by Joni Erickson Tada. Okay? Um, uh, N.T. Wright's Surprised by Hope which is my personal favorite. I think it's the most theologically, it might be a little deep for some, maybe not. Anyway, those are some excellent books because what they're trying to do is not present a new revelation of heaven or anything like that. They're simply trying to take what Scripture says and they're trying to help us kind of systematize it, help us kind of put everything together, uh, help us see how the explanations play in terms of how they originally were expressed. But there's another series of books that have become extremely popular that I have some problems with. And, and it's, it's become such a prevalent feature, it's become such a prevalent uh, expression of discussing the idea of heaven. It, it has its own name, its own title. These are called Heaven Tourism Books. That's their official title. That's not something I made. It's not a derogatory term. That's what they call themselves. So I'm not, I'm not trying to, to make up something there to, to denigrate them or anything like that. That's what they're called, Heaven Tourism Books. These are books that purportedly share or communicate someone's visit to heaven and then their return here. Okay, And, and one of the earliest ones was one by a man named Don Piper um, called 90 Minutes in Heaven. Um, it's one of the first. Uh, some of the others that have come out since then, uh, To Heaven and Back, Proof of Heaven, Thousands of Visits to Heaven, Heaven is for Real, 37 Seconds in Heaven, Heaven is Beautiful. These are, and I could go on and on and on. There are just tons of these books that purportedly the person, they died, they went to heaven for a time, and then they came back and they're writing this book telling you okay, what heaven was like. And these books have become incredibly influential and important. Uh, Thomas Nelson, the publisher of Heaven is for Real, uh, has published thousands of different books on theology, uh, on all sorts of different levels. Um, very uh, prolific publisher. And Heaven is for Real is their number one selling book of all time. Okay, That includes all the versions of the Bible that they publish. Okay, It's the number one selling book of all time. And I have to say, I'm I'm a little bit concerned, maybe a lot concerned, about the fact that these have become so prevalent in our understanding of heaven. Now, I'm not going to go into every problem I have with it. I mean, I could go into the fact that so many of them disagree 
or or argue with each other. Uh, I could go into some of the, and I will point out one or two places where I believe they disagree with Scripture. But I want to go to the heart of the issue, and that is the fact that, that we have put more trust in these books than they deserve. Okay. For instance, uh, on, the, on the cover of Heaven is for Real, you have, like you do with a lot of books, you have comments by experts or comments by somebody who's significant that, that kind of, it, they're recommending the book to you so that you read it, so that you buy it. And, and I, want, I want to just read this quote to you from the cover of the book. It's from the general superintendent of the Wesleyan Church. So this is somebody of some level of importance, some high ranking, I guess you'd say, official in the Wesleyan Church. This is what they have to say about heaven is for real. This story could have been in the New Testament, but God has chosen to speak to us in the 21st century through the unblemished eyes of a child, revealing some of the mysteries of heaven. The writing is compelling and the truth astonishing, creating a hunger for more. Now, just that first sentence alone should trouble you. This story could have been in the New Testament. In other words, what this child has told his parents, his father, and his father is now reporting to us in this book, is on the level of the stories, the content of the New Testament. That's troubling. That's troubling on a lot of levels. Other comments that, that you read there or, or that you hear in connection with these types of books, this has built my trust in heaven. This book has built my trust in heaven. Or this book has provided great comfort to me in terms of knowing what happens after we die. And to put these books, to put any book on par, and sometimes even above Scripture in terms of the role as a resource about heaven, is dangerous, to say the least. And it's troubling because we come to base our beliefs more on a feeling than a fact. We come to, we come to put it more on a desire than a revelation. We come to put it on what we want heaven to quote, be like, rather than what Scripture tells us it's like. And sometimes I would say the content of these books is just plain contradictory to Scripture. Now, there are a couple of these books that, that I think they, they have, that can have some benefit. As a, as a professor, I hate to ever tell somebody, don't read a book. Okay? That goes against the grain of who I am. Okay? I want you to read. I want you to read as much as you can read whenever you can read. Okay, and 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 Piper's book, Don Piper's book, and um, the heaven is for real. At least, at the very least, they they point to the fact that Jesus is the way to heaven. So that's good. That's a good point. That Jesus is the way you get there. But some of them don't even do that. I mean, the the, the whole premise of Proof of Heaven, which is written by a, a neurosurgeon, and so forth is that he got this glimpse into heaven. He got this invitation to heaven despite the fact that he was not a believer. Okay? And so there's some bad theology at the core of some of these. Heaven and back has some bad theology. But listen to this. Even Don Piper, who is a Southern Baptist minister, okay, even him, I think, misses some. This is what he writes on page 30 of his book. As I stood before the gate of heaven, I didn't think of it, but later I realized that I didn't hear songs such as the old rugged cross and the nail-scarred hand. None of the hymns that filled the air were about Jesus' sacrifice or death. And I heard no sad songs and instinctively knew that there should be no sad songs in heaven. Why would there be? 
All were praises about Christ's reign as King of kings and our joyful worship for him, for all he has done, and for us as how wonderful he is. Now, I want you to think about the first part of that sentence and the last part of that paragraph. There were no songs such as the old rugged cross and now heart. There were no songs that filled the air about Jesus' sacrifice or death. And then at the end, they were just songs about all he has done for us. So even within the, the context of the paragraph itself, you have a contradiction, especially when you go to Revelation chapter 5, verse 9 through 10. John's vision. And they sang a new song. So this is a song they're singing in heaven, John says, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. Why? For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. So John, the inspired author of Revelation, tells us what? The song that's sung there is about the blood of Jesus. Piper, who may be well-intentioned and, and may... I'm not going to call into question his integrity or anything like that, but he says there's no songs about the blood or death of Jesus there. Now, which is it? Which one are we going to go with? Well, I know a lot of people who will go with Piper. Why? Because his book makes them feel better. His book answers some questions that they wanted answered, and they put their trust there. But I want to encourage us to, to, to realize that Scripture has to be the center of what we do. It has to be the center of this discussion. Okay, And, and I don't mean to just harp on the, the, this recent phenomenon. This is, a, this is an old phenomenon within Christian history. You have books from Christian history such as the Assumption of Mary, the Gnostic Gospels, Augustine's musings about the nature of human makeup, Milton's Paradise Lost and Paradise Found. All of these books have played a big role in what people think about heaven. Ideas that they've derived about heaven, apart from what Scripture actually says about heaven. And so, to further my point, to, 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 to validate what I'm saying here, I want to turn to Scripture. So 2 Corinthians chapter 12 is the passage I want to use as kind of the heart of our message today. Because I think this passage goes to the idea, goes to the very concept of what our resources about heaven should be. I think this passage itself gives us a picture of what a biblical portrayal, biblical understanding of heaven and a so-called visit to heaven would be like. It is in verses 1 through 6, and Paul here is defending his ministry to the church. Okay, He's been attacked by the people in Corinth. Some people have come in after Paul and they've started to say, what Paul has to say is not true. And this whole idea of the resurrection of the dead, that's just nonsense because Greeks didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead. They believed that, that the body was just left behind and, 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 and no longer considered and you ascended, your soul ascended. But Scripture is always taught, the heart of Scripture is, that the resurrection is what we're looking forward to, a physical resurrection. Just as Jesus was physically resurrected, we will be physically resurrected. 
Well, there were these people who were saying Paul was nonsense for preaching, for teaching resurrection. So they were trying to undermine him. And so he's spending a lot of time here at the end of 2 Corinthians defending his uh, authority, arguing for why he could say what he has to say. And so he's, he's talking about this whole issue of what is his authority? What is, why does, what does he base his ideas on? What does he base his arguments for heaven and resurrection and all these on? And this is where we pick up here in verse 1. He says, boasting is necessary. It is not profitable, but I will move on to visions and revelations. In other words, what's he, what he's saying here is, I don't like to boast. I don't want to boast. Okay? But apparently I have to just to convince you that what I'm saying is true. Okay? So because I have to, just so you'll listen to me, so that you know that I could do what these other guys are doing, I'm going to boast for just a moment here. But I'm going to do it very carefully. Notice how he does it. I know a man in Christ who was caught up to the third heaven 14 years ago. Whether he was in the body or out of the body, I don't know. God knows. I know that this man, whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know. God knows. Was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words which a human being is not allowed to speak. I will boast about this person, but not about myself, except of my weaknesses. For if I want to boast, I wouldn't be a fool, or I wouldn't be a fool because I would be telling the truth. But I will spare you so that no one can credit me with something beyond what he sees in me. Or hears from me. Okay. So Paul here introduces this idea. Now, the first thing we need to clear up is that Paul's talking about himself. Okay. The person who was caught up into heaven, according to this passage, is Paul himself. And he said, But wait a minute, does it why does he speak in third person, first of all? And why does he say, I will boast about this person, but not about myself? This is a very common expression for Paul. This is a very common way. Of Paul, of how Paul speaks, okay, when he's trying to maintain a sense of humility, okay. Um, Paul often portrayed himself as two people: the person that he was earlier and the person he is now standing before them. This this is how he portrays himself many times, okay. Um, uh, when he talks about uh, his credentials in Philippians, when he's talking about being the the ideal Jew, he says, "I could talk about how." I'm, I'm a great Jew, you know, a tribe of Benjamin, circumcised on the eighth day, all these other things, but I'm not going to. Why? Because that's all rubbish. Who I am now is has been sacrificed with Christ. He no longer lives. Jesus Christ now lives in me. This is a very common practice for Paul. And we know that he's talking about himself uh, because of what he says there in verse 6 uh, in terms of, of um, I'm going to, to share just a little bit of, about you. But also what he goes on to say in verse 7, when he talks about how God gave him this thorn in the flesh. And what he's saying there is, God gave me this thorn in the flesh because of this experience of this visit to heaven. That's what he's saying. He's saying, so that I didn't get too arrogant, so that I didn't get too puffed up after this ascension, after this visit, God gave me this thorn in the flesh. And so that confirms for us that he is, in fact, talking about himself. Now, the second thing I want to point out here in, in Paul's words as we get started here is that Paul makes it very clear that heaven is a real place, that it's not just a state of mind. It's not just 
uh, a vision as such. It is an actual place. And, and he, he tells us that by his reference to the third heaven. But what does he mean there? Well, the Jewish mindset, the Jewish cosmogony had three heavens it talked about. The first heaven is our air around us. Okay, it's it's the atmosphere here. It's the it's where the birds fly. It's where the birds dwell. Okay, the second heaven is where the stars, where the sun, where the moon dwells. Okay, that's the second heaven, and then the third heaven is the locale of God Himself. Okay, it's a place, and so that's how the Jews viewed cosmogony. That's how they viewed how the world operates, how everything's functioned, and so that tells us that Paul Himself is confirming. That concept of the third heaven, the third locale, the place where God dwells, is true. That there is a literal place known as heaven. Okay. So he, he tells us these things, um, but I want you to notice what he doesn't tell us, or more precisely, the way he tells us what he tells us. So let's look at that. The first thing I think we note here as we read this, this passage is that Paul is very reserved, very conservative about what he's willing to share. Okay, And he gives us some reasons for this. Number one, he says, the first reason I'm reserved about what I'm willing to share about this place that I went, about this third heaven, is because it's indescribable. He says it cannot, he says, it cannot be told because it is inexpressible. Heard inexpressible things there in verse 4. That's what he says. And so in other words, he's saying, even if I was willing to tell you, I really couldn't. Because what happened there and what I experienced there, what I saw there, what I heard there was beyond description. Okay, So I, I just can't. And, and when you start to couple that with other portrayals of heaven in Scripture, you start to see a pattern that very rarely do you have actual descriptions of heaven? A lot of times what you have are descriptions of what's not there. Notice in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 through 5, it says, Blessed be the Lord, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that's what? Not perishable, that's not defiled, that doesn't fade, kept in heaven for you by God's power, or being sustained through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In other words, Peter doesn't tell us what we experience there in heaven. He tells us what? What it's not. Okay? It's not perishable. It's not defiled. And it doesn't fade. It doesn't wear out. Now, why does he go that route instead of the positive? I think he goes that route instead of giving us these positive, this is what heaven is like, because when you use a positive description of something, you have limited it. Think about it. When you start to describe something, okay, using positive terms, it was this, and it was this, and it was this. If it's really, really wonderful, what do you ultimately end up saying? Oh, I wish I could just describe it to you. Okay? You've just used. Dozens of adjectives to describe it. But then you ultimately end up saying what? Even those don't do. Even those don't suffice. I wish I could describe this to you, what I experienced. Okay? 
So if the biblical writers are, are moved toward a more positive description of heaven, per se, then what ultimately ends up happening is they're going to end up saying the same thing. There's more here than I can actually say. Let me, let me just give you an example from a positive description. Streets of gold. We hear all the time, heaven, those streets of gold in heaven. You know? and, and when you hear that phrase, when you hear that term, what do you think of? What does that, what image of heaven does that draw in your mind? Well, okay, it's probably pretty. Okay. Probably some really good stuff there. That sort of stuff. But I've heard a lot of people say, you know what? That really doesn't hold any attraction for me. Streets of gold. What, why would I care if I'm walking on streets that are gold or not? Okay. But I want, you, I want to invite you for just a second to think about the entire image. And ask yourself one simple question. What do we pave our streets with? Primarily asphalt. Once in a while you'll get some concrete streets, but primarily we pave our streets with asphalt. Why? It's cheap, and you really can't use it for anything else. You really can't use asphalt for anything but paving streets and maybe sealing a roof. Maybe. Okay. And that's always been the case. Throughout history, you pave streets with things you can't use for anything else. Even the Romans who used the stones to pave some of their, their, their greater streets, they did that with stones that they couldn't use for building. So you use that notion, that idea, and you come back to the idea of streets of gold in heaven. And suddenly you have a whole different image of what streets of gold in heaven means. In heaven, or in the world to come, we'll talk about that more next week, gold is what? It's useless for anything other than paving streets. In other words, the very things that we treasure most here, the things that we think are very important here are very precious, very special. We make wedding bands out of them, and, and it's something that everybody collects. You buy gold because the dollar is going to collapse. We, we hear those sorts of things. Gold is that, is that standard. We, we use that phrase, the gold standard. It is the pinnacle of greatness here. But in heaven, all it's good for is paving streets. What does that say about how great heaven is? And what does that say about what the priorities of heaven are versus our priorities today? Okay, And so I think this is why the Bible uses the images it does. And not to mention the fact that when you express something, again, like I said, alluded to earlier, you kind of limit it. You kind of frame it in and you kind of lose some of the power of it. Think of think of your move some some of the movies you've watched. Okay? Some of some of the scariest movies I've watched ever, and I don't really like scary movies. I don't watch them anymore, but growing up I used to watch a lot of them because when you're young you do stupid things. But anyway, some of the scariest movies I watched growing up were movies that never showed me the monster. Okay? When I saw the monster, or the, the evil being, whatever it was, I'm like, eh, whatever. But if you didn't see them, 
if that creature or whatever was left to your imagination, that what? That built that fear. Okay. And, um, to use a, a more modern example, um, I'm not advocating for it or anything like that, but uh, there's a musical that's a pretty big deal right now in America. It's called Hamilton. And I watched it. I enjoyed it personally, but I'm not saying anybody else should or whatever. But at the very end of it, there's a scene where Alexander Hamilton's wife is, she's looking out toward the crowd, you look square on her face, and she gasps and she starts weeping. And the big question is, what did she see that's causing her to gasp and weep? Okay. And there's dozens of ideas. Okay, lots of different views of what it is. But what I'm getting at here and what I'm trying to get, get across is that that scene is very powerful because you don't know what it is she sees. You don't know what it is that's causing her to weep or gasp. It's left to your imagination. And so that becomes a very powerful way to end that play because you carry with you this whole notion of, she saw this, and you connect with it, okay? I think that's a big part of what's going on here with Paul and with other biblical writers in terms of how they, they describe heaven. They're very reserved. Why? Because it's beyond what they could describe in the first place. And even if it's not, even if there are elements they could describe, that limits it in terms of the power of what it communicates to us. A second reason, and, and more um, to the point of what I'm getting at in terms of contrasting with present-day books, is that Paul says in verse 4 that he cannot share what he saw because it's not permitted. The Holy Spirit does not permit him to express these things. Okay, A human being is not allowed to speak. I'm not allowed to tell you what I saw, what he says there. I'm not allowed to communicate that. Why? Because the nature of where it leads. Okay. Now again, I'm going to give credit to the Burpos and so forth that they've constantly, continually tried in every interview they've had to point to Jesus. That's great. But when you actually look at the interviews, you actually look at the exchanges that are going on, even with them, it's about the kid and his vision and what he's experienced. It's about what he's teaching about heaven. It's not about Christ ultimately. It's just not. It can't be. Okay. And Paul wants to make sure that the whole, all the Corinthians, all the people of Corinthians are keeping their eye on Jesus. If he goes into this vision and starts telling all these things, then where's the attention going to be? It's going to be on Paul. Paul's only purpose in sharing this in the first place is so that they will listen to what he has to say about Jesus. He doesn't want to spend a lot of time here. He doesn't want to discuss this. He doesn't want to make this the, the, the essence of his ministry. Because it could have been, just as it would be today. When Don Piper preaches, people listen to Don Piper because of his 90 minutes in heaven. That's what they want to hear. That's what he's come about. That's inevitable. 
And so Paul wants the focus to stay on Christ. And I'm convinced that these books ultimately do more damage than they do good because they lead people away from a confidence in the Word of God. And people become more connected to the feeling or the experience of the book than what God's Word has to say. They become more committed to, and their faith is built by these books. In fact, that's one of the things I hear when I, when I share my opinion on these things. But wait, these books have built my faith. I trust Jesus more. I'm more confident about heaven or, or these other things. And my, my simple question when I hear that from people is, is this. What is your faith in? You say this book has built your confidence, but this book didn't? You have this book that's the story by a four-year-old in some cases talking about rainbow ponies in heaven and how Jesus had a pink crystal in his crown. That creates more sense of awe and wonder and excitement about heaven than what God's Word has to say. There's a problem there, folks. There really is. And, and this is the ultimate point of what Paul is getting at here as he presents this. Paul wants to present a gospel that is testable and verifiable. Notice what he says here. I will spare you so that no one can want no no one can credit me with something beyond what he sees in me or hears from me. In other words, I want the gospel I preach to be what you yourself can see. What you yourself can experience. I don't want to build my case on something that I alone have experienced. That I alone have encountered. I want to proclaim a gospel. I want to preach a truth. I want to proclaim a Jesus that you can see in my life, that you yourself can encounter, that you yourself can experience and walk with. That's what the gospel is. That's what the gospel has to be. It can't be on these visions and so forth that no one can verify. Did those people go to heaven? I don't know. Maybe God blessed them that way. I don't know. I'm not God, and I can't read minds. But if he did, he did it for them not for everyone else. Okay? Because we build our gospel. We build the truth of what we believe on what Scriptures say, something that's verifiable, something that's testable. Scripture invites you over and over and over again to test it, not in a feeling sort of way, you know, how does it make you feel, but against other known expressions of truth. When you read the Bible, it invites you to compare it to all other forms of truth, whether we're talking about science or history or other belief systems or whatever it is. The Bible says, compare me. See if I don't measure up. That's why it's built in real history with real people telling real stories so that you can test it, so that you can look, and so that you can understand these things. Paul wants us to understand that Scripture teaches the sufficiency of grace. The culmination of this whole passage, verses 1 through 6, is actually in verse 9. 
This is where Paul is going with this whole argument. But he said to me, that is God, said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is perfected in your weakness. That's the climax. Paul's expression or telling about his visit to heaven wasn't to tell you about his visit to heaven. It was to say that ultimately the life we live right now is not sustained by those visions. The life we live right now is sustained by God's grace, by God's goodness. I don't want to talk to you about those things. I want to talk to you about my weakness and how Jesus has sustained me through those things. I don't want you to know what a great apostle I am. I want you to know what a great Savior I serve. Is essentially what Paul's saying here. And that needs to be the heart of who we are and, and what drives us. And, and built upon that is the idea that the Word itself is also sufficient. The Word of God is sufficient to answer our questions, to deal with the issues. God has given us everything we need to know about Him and our relationship with Him right here. Right here. And every other experience, every other feeling, every other so-called revelation must be based or balanced against this. If it doesn't balance, if it doesn't match up, we discard it. And even if we do accept it as, quote, valid, it still takes a backseat to Scripture. Paul confirms this in chapter 13. As he's getting ready to, to wrap up his book here in verse 1, he says, This is the third time I'm coming to you. Every matter must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. And he's quoting Scripture there. Why? Because he's saying again, don't build your theology off the opinions of one person. He's saying, don't even build it off the, my opinions. Test it. And there's more than ample witnesses to say, what I've told you is what God is saying. I confirm my testimony. And others will confirm my testimony. And that's the, the basis for how we live. Paul says elsewhere, all Scripture is breathed out by God, profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that man of God may be competent, equipped for what? Every good work. Everything you need to know about God and our relationship to Him is found in Scripture, Paul says right there. Everything. So why is this important? What difference does it make? Well, it's important because it puts the attention where it should be. On Jesus, not us. It puts the authority where it should be. On Jesus and on His Word. Let me ask you this simple question. You take these, these books, these revelations, these visions that people have had. And it doesn't even have to be on the subject of heaven. These things where they say, God has given me this extra vision or whatever. And you build your, your case on end times or whatever it is on these things. Let me ask you. What do you say to a Mormon or a Jehovah's Witness or some other cult who comes to you and says, I know we have Scripture, but we have this other revelation here too that we believe is equal to Scripture. What argument do you have against them at that point? If you're accepting these other visions and revelations and dreams and other descriptions of God that come from someplace other than Scripture, what basis do you have for arguing? You have none. You have absolutely none except for, well, I just disagree with you. But when we understand and when we see that Scripture is the only authority, it's the only basis, then we can quite easily say, 
your vision's illegitimate. Revelation says anybody who adds anything to this book is accursed. And I'm going to stand on the authority of this book and nothing else. You have something objective out there that you can say, this is my authority. You have a response. You have a defense. You have an answer to those views. So it puts the attention where it should be, where the authority where the authority where it should be, the emphasis where it should be. On Jesus. We have one resource for dealing with the issue of heaven. That's scripture. That doesn't mean we're always going to agree. Like I said last week when we were talking about the last days, the end time, there's going to be some points where we disagree on things, where we interpret passages different ways. That's okay. It's okay to disagree. That's how we learn, how we grow, how we discover the truth, ultimately. But it always has to come back. The case always has to be moved by Scripture itself and what it has to say. So as we deal with the subject in the weeks ahead, I'm, I'm going to draw, I'm going to try best I can to answer the questions that are related to, to heaven. Questions about children in heaven. Questions about what do we know in heaven? The issue of what is heaven like? What happens at death? Those sorts of things. I'm going to draw those conclusions from what Scripture teaches us best I can. But ultimately what I hope we understand is that our view in heaven must fit into the truth of Scripture. And the truth of Scripture has one overriding idea, concept. From Genesis through Revelation, there's one reality that Scripture teaches. And that is that we are not the center of the universal reality God is. And as we deal with the subject of, of heaven, the afterlife, all these other things, it has to be Christ-centered. Heaven is not our goal. It's never our goal. A relationship with Jesus is. Understanding Him is. That's why we're given these, these discussions about eternal life. Because every discussion of eternal life is what? It's connected to the Father through the Son, informed by the Spirit. It's all pointing to Him and our relationship. And just as a, a closing challenge, let me ask you this. If you were to discover, if we were to discover in our study as we move ahead, that in heaven, the only thing you'll know, the only thing you'll have, is God himself, would that be enough? Because we talk a lot about seeing the family who passed. We talk a lot about meeting the saints of old. I talk as a historian about seeing the great events, getting out that great VCR in heaven, playing back those great moments of history. But if our concept of heaven is based upon anything other than God, that's idolatry. That's putting the prize, quote, of heaven something God will give us over God himself. At the end of the day, we must be driven first and last by the reality that God is all we need and all we desire.
That must be what drives us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. God, I, I do thank you for the gift of heaven. I thank you for the hope of being reconnected with saints and so forth. But God, what I thank you most for is the fact that we will have an unfettered, unrestricted relationship with you there. That you are the heart of everything we hope for, everything we believe, everything we seek. God, I pray that if there's anyone here who cannot proclaim that, that you would lay that on their heart and you would draw them. Lord, I pray that if there's anyone here who has never accepted you, given their life to you, so that they may have a relationship with you, God, I pray that you would draw them and they would respond. I pray for myself and my brothers and sisters that you would help us to always put you at the center of everything we do and your word as our authority and resource. Lord, we ask that you go with us this week. Help us to proclaim a message of how awesome our God is. That people might not see how great we are, how good we are, but see how great you are. It's in Christ's name I pray these things. Amen.